right. Here we go again. Bringing you the latest and greatest. At least that's a plan. Intention is everything, huh? Huh? All right, extra special episode today. Extra special. Maybe I say that way too often. But today, I think I mean it because we're going to talk to a real-life teacher, even though that's what I am. I'm bringing on my buddy Jason Searle, who has been teaching for many, many years. He's a true vet. And he's also a close buddy of mine that has shared a lot of wisdom throughout the years and helped me along. Even though I think I'm a little bit older than him, he's the wily vet. He's Harris in Major League. Crisco, Bardall, Vagisil. Any one of them will give you another two to three inches drop on your curveball. All right, Harris. And I'm uh, Wild Thing Rick Vaughn, fresh out of prison. And into the schools. Well, it's been super weird lately, as we all know. Zooming and zooming, but now as we slowly get back to campus, some of the bright spots are seeing people. And Jason Searle is one of the people I like to see each and every day. And the amount of topics I like to tackle with this guy are numerous. However, I figured for today's podcast, we'd really focus in on the world of education. The ever-evolving, or perhaps not evolving fast enough, world of education is the direction I meant to go. But it gets into all sorts of areas, from religion to philosophy. So I'm hoping you enjoy this one. Jason is a lifelong Hornet, played college baseball and some semi-pro baseball as well. He's been a coach. He's been a scholar. He's been a legend. Actually, when I say coach, he's coached varsity football and varsity baseball. And when I first met him, I was just hoping he would be like John Goodman in Revenge of the Nerds. You know, a real asshole of a coach. But that's not Jason. No, unfortunately, Jason is a steady, nice guy. Nothing like John Goodman the head coach of Adams College in Revenge of the Nerds. And now, well, we're off the rails. But to get us back on the rails, I'm bringing on my man, Jason Searle. Let's start this puppy. How many years, I don't even think you need a calculator, but how many years have you been a history teacher? Uh, This is year full 14 years. So this is year 14. Um, But it's definitely feels like more, I think. I think uh, for some reason, I feel like I've been doing this my whole adult life, which is kind of true. I, I started teaching at 22 years old. So I've been in this game as far as, I mean, 14 years of, of uh, being a full-time teacher, not not counting the, the year of teacher school. And this is not a joke of a question, but do you still like it? Yeah. I mean, teach, for me, teaching is uh, what makes my like enjoyment in life is is doing what i'm doing and and being able to get into a classroom i remember during this whole pandemic thing like we we got so tired of zoom teaching because you didn't get that like human response to your dumb jokes and your <laughs> uh you know ridiculous history puns and your uh the the way that kids respond to being challenged and and being forced to think about things they've never thought about before um, makes teaching so much fun. And and I think that's why when we did the Zoom version of things, it was like, what are we doing here? I mean, yeah, we'll get through it and, and everyone's in the same situation. But, you know, being Zoom tired is so real. Like you just kind of get over that component of teaching. If, if they say, uh, you know, teaching, you're paid in um, intrinsic value. Uh, the intrinsic value was lower during the pandemic because, you know, Zoom teaching is not the same. Oh, yeah. I mean, the bounce back to seeing humans on campus, it's been healthy for me. I know it's been healthy for a lot of these kids, but that's the only question today where I knew the answer. I knew 
you would say, yeah, I still like it because you've been doing it this long. And I also knew the first time I returned to Novato High after a summer break, I was in your classroom and I said, I was ready. You know, summer kind of felt long. And you said, I'm always ready. Like we're Mm -hmm. not, we're not the type of teachers that go, oh, I need a longer weekend or I need a longer winter break. You seem to be ready to rock whenever they call your name and you seem to take on a lot of responsibilities, yet you never seem stressed. And I've known you about six or seven years. You've never seemed phased. At least you've never shared it. Is that just your natural disposition to take on a bunch of responsibilities smoothly in the flow of it without complaining? Yeah, I think unfortunately for for my own mental health and, and like I'm... I'm stressed a lot. I don't sleep very well. Like I definitely have the game when I'm a coach weighs on me when I'm teaching, you know, the, the subject matter and trying to make sure that I'm doing the right things and making sure that the, uh, everything's taught the right way. And then also, like you said, like I, I do sit on all sorts of committees. I work with all sorts of different innovation in tech, in, in education and not just technology innovation, but also different, different forms of curriculum and, and curriculum development. And so, I'm always thinking about ways to push things forward. I, to be honest, I think my disposition as a teacher is heavily qualified by my athletic background. Like my, my belief in myself is that I never want to just be like, I never want to just be a part of uh, something as an average, whatever it is. I always want to push myself to, and others, hopefully uh, to try to be the best version of, whatever we're doing. And I think that's really an athletic background and, and forcing yourself to never be satisfied with mediocrity or being satisfied with just being good. You always kind of want to be the best if you can. And that's the one thing I really find about teaching that I can still, you know, as an athlete, I can't do that anymore. I don't have the physical ability to compete at a level that I want to compete at anymore. So as a teacher, I can do, there's, there's no limitation to my ability to push uh, and push things forward. So for me, it's it's a way to utilize that internal fire that I have to be uh, progressive and, and move forward in this field of education and hopefully bring other people with me. See, I'm happy you said that because this is not a field you want to plateau in because then it becomes redundant and then it becomes monotonous. And then you start to just count down the days until summer break. And then when do I retire? And it becomes a hamster wheel of a life. So that being said, I want to focus on some of the fads because I've only been in the game seven years and I've noticed it's a new leader who says, and here's how we will revolutionize the classroom experience. And it's noble. Don't get me wrong. If we're always thinking about better ways to connect and better ways for these students to learn, that's all good. But have you noticed the endless fads that come to your table? And it's up to us to say, okay, this will work. This might not work. But is it all based in the fact that we're not advancing? quickly enough, that sometimes the classroom experience, even though we're all trying to be very innovative, have you noticed that sometimes it just lapses back into what it's always been in some ways? Yeah, my my biggest issue with education is that you get these cyclical fads, as you put them, and what happens is people gravitate towards them, districts spend lots of money implementing them, and then you generally get in these five-year cycles, uh, depending on who what administrators you have above you and what systems they're comfortable with. So whenever you have changes within the system from an administrative standpoint, you're going to have shifts. As a veteran teacher, I can 
very easily remember every drastic shift <laughs> um, we've had. You know, we started with uh, PLCs, which was per professional learning communities. Everyone was supposed to create these really dynamic relationships with their fellow uh, departments and and they would together you know work on establishing assessments that were that were more thought well thought out based on data et cetera et cetera you'd meet together refine refine I actually found that system as being very effective because I I would argue that that's one of the things that as our department I try to value is our connection and and the ways that we can help each other out so I saw that you know that fad was really heavy when I started teaching um, then we had this like PBL uh, project-based learning uh, system where it was, you know, you had to design these amazing projects and they're on these long timelines and the kids are, you know, it's, it's you know, get rid of the sage on the stage and move to the, the student-centered classroom and, uh, you know, do some flip classrooms so they get the knowledge at home so that you can get it back in the classroom and then they can work on it and do a project and that's going to be the the silver bullet that that solves everyone's problems, and then, then we went through this uh, standards-based grading kind of version of things, which was kind of a hybrid between PBL and and a step towards what what eventually we're in the middle of a, a proficiency-based education, which is PBE. Um, so many acronyms. And, yeah, it, you know, if you're education, you have to. That's that's the test to become a teacher. Is just they just <laughs> give you a bunch of acronyms and then you just draw lines. So true. Um, but the. Uh, the thing about education for me and what becomes my most important like North Star is how does it affect kids? How does it affect my my own teaching and my in the way that I assess kids and make sure that it's as accurate and authentic as it can be? And where are the ridiculous things in education that don't need to be there mm -hmm. just because they've always been there? So for me, education should be simple. And, and it should be responsive. It should be where you're giving people feedback on a consistent basis so that they can grow. And if you have those elements, I am never a believer in one silver bullet is going to fix the classroom. You have to understand that education is about humans. And, you know, as history teachers, one of the things that I always teach my class uh, teaching European history is, you know, anytime you're trying to establish a government, you know that you've lost the plot when your government is more important. The actual state that you're trying to create becomes more important than the people in it. So when you're just trying, like fascism does, where you, where you basically prioritize the ethic state and the state becomes the most important thing. And the only way to, to make sure that you're in the right relationship with the state is if you're doing everything for the state or in communism where it's all about creating the state and that certain specific nationalism and getting rid of everything else and doing it, it becomes this concept where if you care more about the state, you've actually lost the plot. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's about people. It's not about the state. And so, and I think education is the same way where you, you need to do things that are best for the people, the, the teachers, as well as, and more importantly, the students, like what are we doing to make sure our students have the best access to the education they need and are assessed in a fair and equitable manner so that they can progress through and, and become uh, better citizens in the long run, hopefully. But Well, here's my issue with it, and I do love this profession, but I think we've all been in the system for so long that there's an element to being a quiz show where these are the key terms today and these are the key names today in its memorization. And in history, especially 
what we're teaching. I wonder if you see a more emotionless response. I mean, we're talking about famine. We're talking about atrocities. We're talking about massacres. We're talking about bombings. Yet a lot of these kids are just coming from math on their way to PE, coming from English on their way to the next art course. And I'm wondering, do you see that? Is it that they're teenagers and they're just not able to process the depth and the heaviness to some of the things we're teaching? Or is it the fact that the system is not set up for them to have emotional connections in our classes because we're just racing them from test to test to test to test to test to test? Yeah, I think in- inherently we are trying to do that. And I think s- there there is some reckoning to be had around going too close to a standards-based system where it's like, you have to hit this standard to hit this standard that hits that. And I think you do, again, I think that the balance, the, the beautiful balance in anything is to try to figure out where, what is the human element here mm-hmm. that we have to make sure that we're also accomplishing in this, in this ultimate goal of, of education, right? And one thing I miss so much when we were in a Zoom situation and, and I still am waiting for the time where we can do uh, a real Socratic seminar. One of the things I really love about when I when I started implementing Socratic seminars in my class is it gave them a chance to think about really difficult topics. It gave them a chance to discuss and flush out really, really kind of emotional and things that they generally don't get the time to do. And um, one of the things that we can't do yet really is is that kind of dialogue debate kind of thing. It just doesn't quite work in our situation because because of the way that we have to be distanced and things like that. So I will say that's the one thing that I'm hoping in the future I can kind of reintroduce pretty soon here is that dialogue because I and it might be a bit of my own experience because I do teach mostly AP kids. Um, and my goal, as much as I do want them to hit those standards and know those vocab terms and hit the, all the, at the end of the day, I would rather they get really good at critical thinking. Yeah. Like I'd rather they'd be able to take this situation and compare it to this situation and be able to come to a conclusion about different ethics or moralities and things that, you know, things that matter uh, at the end of the day. So it is a delicate balance. And I, I think that you can, if you're trying to go too deep in any type of a system is prioritize the system over the people. And that's, that's again, the wrong thing to do. Yeah. You could tell that I'm an inquisitive person. Even when I was hired, I never claimed to have the answers. I'm not a know-it-all. And it just turns out that you've been like my wealth of information. So I've come to you throughout the years. And one of the things you preached is that to succeed as a teacher, you got to show them your authentic self. You can't play this game, create a facade of just being history teacher in room 2101 for 50 minutes a day. You really have to reveal your authentic self do you truly do that? And if so, when did you feel like, okay, you know what, now is the breakthrough? It's probably not immediate, but I'm just wondering, when did you realize that that was going to be the key to connecting is to reveal your authentic self to these kids? Um, for me, it's it's in my own strength as an educator, and, and I consider myself a pretty experienced thinker. Like, I, I've, I think through things first i i'm an i'm generally an introvert so i don't yeah you know search out and look for a conversation if it's not going to come to me but in being an introvert i internalize and think through things a lot and so what i found as an educator and someone that does generally succeed well in in lecturing and lecturing well is that i found a stride of authenticity and free thought in lecture to where i can incorporate and wrap current events, current concepts, 
in a way that doesn't specifically get myself into a weird situation where I'm taking sides, but is utilizing the, the things that they're thinking about and, and stuff that's going on in the news to relate it to things that I'm teaching all the time. Sure. But, but that kind of like ability takes the, you have to be a master first of the content you're teaching so that when you try to incorporate things that are current, that they're accurate and, th and that they, they're cohesive and that they make sense and they're not just a, a jump over here to, to a jump back. It has to be this interwoven kind of seamless event where you're doing it. And that took years of teaching. I remember my first year of teaching AP Euro, I was reading four textbooks when they were reading one, just so that I was feeling like I was on, on, in front of them when, when we were talking about content. Now, I don't even need to look at a textbook. I know the information. It's, it's second nature. I walk into the classroom and know what I need to convey and what they need to know. And now I have the freedom to be able to think critically, think creatively, think about how these things work together. And I think that one of the things that's really difficult as a teacher, and we've talked about this before, like our profession is not paid in a way that really values longevity, values what it means to be a, uh, a veteran teacher, but it takes a veteran teacher many times to get to the point where you can create this creativity. And it's difficult for a veteran teacher to do that if they don't feel valued with how they're paid. Mm. So many times you have to create, like for me, that's an internal motivation. It's not, a, it's not based on my paycheck. I want to do it because this is what I do. This is what I find value in. If someone isn't paid well and they're in the same situation as being a veteran, what is their incentive? Do they have personal motivation to do the creativity that they're capable of as a veteran? Or are they just now punching the clock? And I think that's the issue with education is it really, it undervalues you in general. But as an, as an early teacher, you really are struggling for the first four or five years through finding yourself. And once you find yourself, the problem is you don't really see a, a pay increase. So you, you don't see the, okay, I've got this. I'm a better teacher than I was. Where's the approval? Like, you know, where is the, the thing that tells me that that's true? Sure. That's flawed. Um, that's very flawed system, but we have to be members of the system by even agreeing to do this. You know, even hearing you say that, it reminds me about life altogether. Like it's a microcosm of life. As we age in general, we're going to atrophy. I'll become wrinkled and gray. You know, I'll probably get a little shorter, but there's something wonderful about gaining wisdom and just becoming better yeah. at the game of life. So you're talking about teaching the first few years are rugged, but as you interweave all these qualities that you've learned, you start to master your concepts and then it becomes a different profession altogether. I love hearing that. And it's true. We can start enjoying aging in many other facets of life if we take upon that mindset. Yeah, I agree. I, I think for me, the and, and I think the same thing is, is relevant in coaching. Like as a, as a coach, I think coaching and teaching are so similar. But as a coach, someone that enters the game of coaching as a young grad student or as someone who is, you know, even if it's at the college level or the high school level, whatever level it is, you're kind of entering in a position of, I have the physical and the experience of being a good baseball player, for example, but I don't really have the conceptual knowledge of how to make someone else do that. I can model it to you physically, 
but I'm not sure how to orchestrate it so that it's a, and it's the same in the classroom. I can be a good history student, but how do I portray that history knowledge that I have in a way that is sensible, that creates these dynamic kind of critical thinking abilities? How do I do all that? And that, and that takes years of struggle. And to be honest, that's that's what makes us human, right? Is, is the struggle we have mm-hmm. in finding who we are, the struggle we have in the things that are most difficult in life are the things that make us who we are. So it, it's very important to go through that struggle so that on the other end of it, you can actually start to enjoy how that struggle shaped you kind of as an educator or as a coach or whatever it might be. You know, what's interesting, Jason, we're just talking about kind of the process and we're talking about the world of education and as people, how we grow. But what about the students? If I asked you from 14 years ago till today, you know, I, I could hear how you've grown, how you've matured and changed. But have you noticed a tangible difference with teens, let's say in 2005 to where we are today? And sometimes I tell my students, we didn't talk about mental health as often when I was in high school. We didn't even really discuss bullying. It existed, but there wasn't such an emphasis on it. How could you describe just the changes you've seen in teens in a 14-year career, if you could try to remember what it was and what it is. Yeah, I mean, for me, I really identified early in my career with the kids I was teaching because I was in the same generation as them. So like there, there was this, I'm, a, I'm an old millennial. I was basically teaching millennials. And then when you hit like, it's like the 97, 98 range. So that was 2015-ish, something like that, 15, 16, 17, right in there. I started to see a significant shift in the kids I was teaching. Like that generation of millennials, even the younger ones, they had some similarities to me that I could connect to. And their experience with technology was similar to mine in that, you know, they didn't grow up on an iPad, but they were introduced to it at a certain point in their life, as I was, as I'm sure you were. And as you get to the younger groups now that we have currently, they're foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Like they, they have a, from a cultural perspective, they are very foreign to me. I find them quite kind, but at the same time, I find them more passive aggressive on the internet than in person. It's, it's almost like this element of their world is where the real danger is and where the mental health is such a big, big issue. Whereas when in person, they're, they're almost very trained to you know be more accepting and kind to each other and it's like this over here is wow. where they're I think you're right. angry and, and things like that. So when I teach uh, Freud and Euro, I always say, you know, Freud said we got anxiety because we deal with the, uh, the id, the ego and the superego. And I'm like, you guys grew up with social media, which is like a whole nother mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So you got the id, the ego, the superego and social media. And you're more anxious than any generation to ever live because you're dealing with something generations before you never dealt with since they were kids, you know, since they were little. And I think that that's probably more true for these kids. God, when you describe them as foreign, I completely agree. And I'm always trying to connect, you know, I'm always trying to understand their world because this is almost the way we can predict the future. If this is the next generation, then, Hey, we get to see the trends that are coming. Their sensibilities. A lot of them, are very kind in person. You're right, but they may take on a different life when it comes to the screens and the devices that they're behind. When I look at the whole system, like I take a step back and I look at the whole system, I do believe that 
there are some delicate topics. Like when I teach about the history of Jesus, when I talk about the Roman Empire, a lot of the time I want to say, I don't have a religious upbringing. This is not supposed to be a religious conversation. But then again, if you're religious, bring something to the table. You could talk about your feelings about Jesus and you could talk about um, what God means. So I feel like sometimes when you teach social studies, we are allowed to expand into the other realms but you're one of my few friends that actually does know about theology. Like you grew up in the church and you kind of have a pretty good grasp on the Bible. So I've come to you a few times. I guess my first question is, do you think that we could ever actually achieve a true separation of church and state? Even though it says we're supposed to have that, do you think that's even a possibility even in a non-private school? I, I think the, the whole concept of separation of church and state is very muddied in a way because what you're asking for if you're if you're talking about a true separation of church and state is you are asking for people to separate themselves from who they are so you're asking somebody to not be part of who they are when when you say you can't bring that here right so i think that when when you talk about separation of church and state what you really should be talking about is not having the state tell the church how to deal with themselves and vice versa. The church should not be telling the state how to deal with itself. Meaning that the separation of church and state is really about someone standing up there and saying, you have to believe this because this is what the state believes and have it have a, a religious backing, right? That being said, culture, law, tradition is steeped in religion. So to try to separate religion out from law is a tenuous effort. Well said, well said. Um, so I, I don't know. I think like in my class, I teach the Reformation, which is a huge component of AP Euro. Like you have to understand it in order to understand religious wars. So does the separation of church and state say I shouldn't teach that? I think the answer should be, why would we not teach that? Like wh why would we not teach the experience of different groups going through history and dealing with their relationship to church and state and how that worked, how it's changed over time. And I think without understanding the history of the relationship between church and state, how are you supposed to separate it so that people can feel like they are a part of our society, which is a very eclectic society, sure. which has so many different cultures, which appreciates so many different cultures and religions and backgrounds? Why can't we identify those things without considering it me pushing an agenda or someone pushing an agenda? I, I think that's where you get into the, the realm of that's, you know, that's clearly what you can't do. But I, I think that when people talk separation of church and state, I think many times they're doing it in a fashion where they don't really understand what they're saying, or they don't really understand that if you truly tried to separate it completely, that you're actually telling people to separate themselves from their own culture and from their own background, which is impossible. You know, what's interesting is I didn't care about this when I was growing up, when I was a kid and adolescent, I was so bored learning about religion. But nowadays there's something about it that does help me understand society. So whether I like it or not, I'm fascinated with it. And I even tell the students, I, was, I say, take off the HI of history. This is just story class. Like these are the stories that are going to help you understand society around you. And if I asked you, regardless of Christianity, Judaism, Mormonism, Islam, do you think that there's a commonality of all of these where it's just humans connecting to stories? Because this is 
is such a mystery as we stumble through our lives. This is such a mystery. Do you think it's just human nature to clamor on to a story that's going to guide us? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, one of the fa- my favorite classes I teach is AP Art History. And when you look at art in general, it, it, you cannot find a culture that doesn't include religion in its art, that doesn't include part of their belief systems and culture, which have very strong religious entities to them and, and emphasis in them as part of what they would like to express to other people or, or expressed as valuable to them. So I, I think that it's difficult, again, as a teacher to try to have this tiptoe stance when it comes to talking about those mm-hmm. things. To be fair, many of the kids that we're teaching now, they've lived a life of a very non-religious person for the most part, right? Most, most people are not very practicing today in, in a more orthodox fashion. So they don't have the back. I mean, think of 20 years from now, what's Jeopardy going to look like? When, when they're no longer talking about the Old Testament, the New Testament, things like that, right? <laughs> right. They take that out of Jeopardy, that's like a third of the questions. <laughs> right. So, right. you know, what's Jeopardy going to look like when they get rid of religion completely? Um, you know, so I think there is, and, and Jeopardy, to be fair, has incorporated other religions than simply just the Judeo-Christian tradition. So you have um, other elements that they're trying to include because we are in a very more eclectic world. But I think that being able to study history is studying the story, like you said, of the people that and how they told it. And many of them, if you study their art and you study their history, are telling it through their worldview, their lens, their religious and cultural backgrounds. That's what we should celebrate. And that's what we should really see and why they prioritize those things, why it was valuable to them. So what you've learned is as we teach the patterns of history is that there's the rise and fall of strong countries and strong empires. And then we teach about how they fall. They rise and they fall. What about America? We're a top dog right now. We're a very powerful country. If you were a sci-fi writer, if you were writing the end of it beyond our lifetimes, I think by the time I die, America is going to still be number one. But (laughs) what do you think would cause us to crumble one day? What would be the true death knell? Oh, us. Us. Well, elaborate on that. So the thing that that's happening right now is is uh, right now you have a conservative America that's going through a bit of a soul searching moment. They're, they're trying to figure out, is it the Trump party? Is it the traditional Republican party? Is it a revised Republican party that needs to adapt some some different uh, ideologies, include maybe some more social justice reform and include more ideologies that that. Uh, millennials and, and younger generation can kind of gravitate towards. And then you have a liberal party that is in the current moment, kind of the blanket anti-Trump party. And so you have this dichotomy where the conservatives are in the middle of soul searching. The liberals are in a, a, a bit of a win situation right now where they feel like they're in charge, they're, they're winning. The problem the liberals will have in the next five to 10 years is that their tent is so big that you you are going to see a bit of a division when you start to see the moderate liberal versus the, the really strong progressive. And, and what you'll see in the future is a liberal party that's going to also come to a, uh, a moment of soul searching as well. I think that as long as our system continues to value every state and every person in it and no and doesn't get to a place where it becomes only California and New York running everything. I think that would be the the demise of America. 
is if you get to a position where it's authoritarian by the majority and you have a group of people that are in charge simply because they are the majority and you devalue the rest of the system, I find that as being the most, the closest America could come to breaking apart. And if you look at the map, a political map of the United States, you really have these super hubs of blue, and then you have a red middle. And that in and of itself is dangerous. Uh, the only other times in history you see things like that, I mean, the French Revolution is a really good example. The French Revolution was that. If you took a, a snapshot of France during the French Revolution, Paris is your progressive blue, and the rest is red. And, and Paris is, is having to put down revolts all over the place, killing their own people to try to push an agenda that's pretty strongly, like pretty strongly progressive for that period. And, and I think that's where you could see a reckoning is if people move so far uh, politically apart that they're unable to, to recognize the value of each other. Sure, I agree that that could cause us, the U.S., to crumble. But to play devil's advocate for a moment, why don't we just do it already? Why don't we just stop playing this united, unified game? I know it's the name of the country, United States, but why don't we just allow it to bifurcate, to separate, and allow these hubs to be their own sovereign nations? Uh, are, are we pushing the uh, free California agenda here? We're going to a, a full... Um... Well, I'm talking about in 100 years, let's say. So if the uh -huh. end the end of the movie, it doesn't have to be so sad. It doesn't have to be like such a dramatic fall of the American empire, but just how it ends, how it naturally evolves. If there's more like-minded people, you know, separating to their own areas of tribalism, why don't we just redraw the boundaries and say, hey, we don't have to act like we're the same anymore. We, we've just gone too far and migrated too far in our respective directions. Why don't we just stop playing the game of United I have no problem with that, uh, but you know, from a objective standpoint, I have no, I have no problem with that. My issue is the process in which that would happen is really the Good. struggle. Right? <laughs> I hear what you're saying. It's it's war. It's all that <laughs> um, war to redraw these districts and boundaries. End game. That's great. Um, and, and in my mind, you could think of the United States like the European Union. Um, if the European Union is is more of a loose confederation of states which are more autonomous. I think that could be one thing, but that the problem we have is that doesn't fit our, our current political spectrum. You know, our current political spectrum fits in a situation where liberals are generally bigger federal government and conservatives are, are more states' rights. And what we're asking for in that system is more states' rights with a loose confederation, right? And so we're, we're in a weird spot because your more conservative areas of the country that generally want to be left alone and, and don't want as much government involvement are the ones who would struggle very deeply with being pushed in a direction of a very strong federal government. Mm -hmm. And so what does California and New York have to say about the dissolution of a strong federal government I don't know. It's a, it, it is from a sci-fi perspective, if we're taking this completely uh, you know, out of the realm of reality, I, I think that you could absolutely argue for uh, stronger states' rights, allowing people to 
move very similar to a European Union and uh, work state to state if you had some kind of a economic cooperation between states to make sure that you don't have drastic tax issues going state to state with different products and things like that. I think that it would, it, it could work just fine, but that's a pragmatic sci-fi resolution. This didn't get too wild. So I asked you, how would America crumble eventually? What about planet earth? And it's the same answer us. It will be us. Do you think human nature is naturally destructive as somebody that teaches history? And you realize a lot of these are negative outcomes when we teach a unit and this is how it ended. It's not like an happily ever after. It's very rarely happily ever after. So from the environment to how we have drawn boundaries and the amount of people being oppressed right now, should we just chalk it up to human nature? Homo sapiens, we're naturally destructive. I'm not saying you, I'm not saying me, but if we just try to zoom out and take a look at these creatures called humans, holy shit, are we messing things up? I mean, is that a rhetorical question? No, you could. Um, <laughs> I, I almost want you to dispute it and say, no, Josh, there's good in the world. Because I'm not so cynical, but I'm just you trying the to. Wrong guy here. I'm just objectively. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm objectively looking at our thumbprint. Even the movie that we were talking about, Sea Spiracy, which you recommended, yeah. I don't think about the oceans on a day to day basis. Yeah. And I watch a two hour documentary and I go, God, now we fucked the oceans up too. It's like, what are we doing? What are we doing right now that's actually helping this planet? Well, and and that's the uh, the pragmatic side of this, right? Is that anytime humans have been tasked with what would most people consider insurmountable uh, issues, uh-huh. we generally respond pretty pretty creatively. Um, that's that's one of our benefits. Are there times when we look like the locust? Yeah, I think. If you look at humanity from a broad objective perspective, we are the locust of the of the world and we are just depleting, destroying, crushing environments all over the place. Right. But if you think of it from a creativity and and economic standpoint, those are opportunities for creative solutions of prolonging our our stay on this planet. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there's some positives to that because th- there's a lot of people, and I think uh, it might have been Elon Musk who, you know, he's debatable on how, how much of a villain or a, a hero he is. But at the same time, I think it was him that said part of the reason why a lot of my technology is free and, and open to people is because I don't want to be the last guy left on the planet, like on a sinking planet. And I, I think that w- at the end of the day, this is going to take some real creativity and ingenuity and I believe that humanity has the ability to come up with creative solutions. I think the difficulty is people, we have created a system that is very individualistic and consumer-based. And it is very difficult to tell a human to want less and to give away more. And so we're going to have to find a way to retrain people to live on less and maximize what they have. And that's not a very easy concept for Americans, and it's not a very easy concept for much of the Western world. So I I think it's going to be interesting to see. And to be fair, I, I, I don't think that even other forms of government have dealt with these these uh, concepts very well either. You look at the communist system in Russia, and they had issues with famine, and they had issues with other situations because of the way that that things operated 
you know, there's no perfect system that's going to save us. Uh, I think it's the end of the day, the only thing that's going to save us is human ingenuity and creativity. So I'm hopeful that like we were talking about earlier, when uh, us as teachers, I think the priority really should be teaching these kids how to problem solve, teaching these kids how to think creatively, how to think their way through problems rather than memorize things. There's a lot to unpack there. I, I think you're right. We could preach it, but individualistic upbringings, it's not like we intended to have it that way, but we have to survive. So a lot of the focus is on us, our families, but to really see the big picture and how it could be a society where more is provided for everybody. We're not there yet. We're just not. And I know what you're saying. A movie like Seaspiracy, it focuses on these individual corporations that are driven by the dollar that are going to overlook some of the moral ways to provide for people. You know, I'm going to have you back on the show because there are some other topics I want to jump into. But here's where I want to end. I also know that in our lifetime, we're in our 30s right now, but I don't know if it's when we're in our 40s, our 50s, or 60s. I want to make a documentary with you, and I now know what it's going to be called. All right, all right. Ready? Yeah. Locusts on Netflix. Perfect. A film I by Josh it. Rosenberg and Jason Searle. Just you saying locusts, I was like, oh yeah, that'll capture. That'll capture an audience. And then everybody's going to be talking about it. Hey, did you see locusts on Netflix? Yeah. Holy like shit. That. that was heavy. That was Let's wild. Those filmmakers are brave. Just like that 22-year-old who made Seaspiracy. All right, here's how I'm ending. I'm going to give you a definition of the word superstition. Superstition, unjustified belief in a supernatural causation leading to certain consequences of an action or event. So you're a lifelong baseball soul. I assume mm -hmm. you've had superstitions associated with the sport and beyond. But if I say, you know, make a wish when it's 11-11 or knock on wood, what are your superstitions on a daily basis, if any? Coffee. That's an addiction. Um, that's an addiction. No, that's superstition. Why? But so I'll tell you why. This morning, my coffee maker broke. I had the worst morning of my life. <laughs> I, I w it wasn't that bad. But, it, but I was so fixated on that darn coffee machine. Uh -huh. I'm sitting there taking it apart, trying to fix the coffee machine. Finally, with 10 minutes before class, I'm like, I'm going to bomb down to Marin Coffee Roasters, Ooh, yeah. bomb back over here. And I'll, I'll start my review session right at 10 o'clock. And I got there right back at 10 o'clock with a full cup of coffee and everything was right with the world again. Oh, they make a strong but roast. It, they make a real strong roast. So this is not just an addictive caffeinated beverage. You're saying it's ritual. It's the ritual. It's part of, I, I was sitting there going, I can't lecture Ooh, I, I get that. Hour without my cup. I don't even care if it's, you know, perfectly heated up. I want to be able to just smell that coffee, know that I'm alive and then continue on my day. And, it, you know, it's funny. I'm, I am a baseball player. I will always be a baseball player. My rituals before baseball were just as good as anyone. Like, I always ate chicken the night before. I always had the same couple of socks in rotation. I was only allowed to wear these two different socks. I couldn't introduce new socks midway through the season. I only had to have a certain amount. I, I always put my glove back together a certain way. I always made sure that my bag was set out the right way. I always made sure when I got to the yard, I put on my cleats the same way. Everything was programmed. And what I found, and this is me uh, eventually being a bit more circumspect when I was older and, and retired, is all of that was what made me good at what I did is because the, the psychology behind those superstitions is that everything is in a certain place so that I can maximize my performance. And it wasn't necessarily that it made me a better player, but it filtered the rest of my mind 
so that I could just play. And so there's, there's a, I think in a, in a way I, I carry some of those things with me still in the morning. I still generally eat the same thing every day. I generally get up at pretty much the same time every day. I generally shower exactly like everything is programmed so that the rest of the day is as it should be. So you're a creature of That's comfort and this is your attempt at providing order at capturing yeah. order in a world full of disorder. See, I get all that. I really do. But I was going to say, I knew you would capture the psychology of superstition, but I was going to say, it's all bullshit, and I'm a superstitious person. Like, if I look at a clock and it says 1111, and I actually pause my day to make a wish, I'm buying into something that I know is bullshit. And I wonder if we're just wired that way. Humans will capture the supernatural stuff and not really understand our actions. You know damn well if you didn't have chicken, you'd probably still hit the same way the next day. It could have been steak, it could have been sea bass, but you said no. I had steak? No, uh-uh. Are Absolutely you being serious, not. though? There's no way. I'm dead serious. There's no way. But you it, know, Jay, you're pragmatic. You know you're wrong right now. You could have had steak and had I the do. same exact I game. I absolutely know I'm wrong, but I'm not <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so you, you don't think any superstitions are a little weird. They almost strike you as normal if they set you up for success, mental success. If we're considering humans in general as normal, then superstition is as human as anything because it makes us mentally try to grasp onto the chaos that the world is and make sense of it. So anyone's superstition, as much as you can laugh at it as being ridiculous for you, makes sense for that person in the, in the way that they make sense of the world. So why do you think we're we all a little crazy? Why do you think we can't just say it doesn't make sense? Why can't we just relegate our entire mind to say this doesn't make sense? It'll never make sense. And we're kind of wandering aimlessly. Why, why do you think we clamor to have, oh, if I throw the salt over my shoulder or eat chicken or make a wish with a shooting star, what the hell are we doing when we know in our right mind it's all bullshit? Well, if we take this from a very existential approach, you know, it, life itself is about creating meaning in life. And so while throwing salt over your shoulder or doing this and that may not create meaning, it creates a sense of normalcy, which gives people purpose, which gives people meaning. Mm. So I think it's all part of our mental chaos expressed in a illogical, superstitious way that gives us a sense of normalcy. I agree. And it all comes full circle because something so ridiculous as us describing these superstitions could also show us how fragile we are, where if years and years and years and years of people worshiping, let's say, Arby's roast beef sandwiches was already in place. By the time I was born, I might adopt that myself and say, I also can worship the Arby's roast beef sandwich with horsey sauce and curly fries. And even though someone 3000 years later might look back on this and study it and go, God, how dumb were humans worshiping Arby's? I'd say it makes sense because like you just said, we're trying to grasp a slice of normalcy, a slice of purpose, and it could come in many different forms. My man, this was so good. I know we went extra long. I know you got to hit the batting cage, but thank you. Yeah, of course. I'm glad I was able to come on. You're going to have to have me uh, back on again at some point. I will. That's wild that we didn't even talk sports. And for the listeners, this is the guy who I come to every morning to drink a little coffee with and get some discussions in about the world. So you're a good yeah, man, Steph sir. Steph Curry's still the MVP. Without a doubt. I can't even think of a competitor. We're in agreement. We're in I agreement. don't understand how there is a competitor. The fact that he's doing what he's doing at his age, I don't know why he's not the undoubted MVP right now. Do you think he's the best player? I think that's where people get it twisted, is that maybe they think the term MVP means best player 
in the league. I think he is both the best player in the league this year uh-huh. and the most valuable to his team. But you agree there's a difference? Yeah, absolutely, there's a difference. LeBron James is the best player in the league since, yeah. Yeah. since Kobe left the league. I think at one point Kobe was better than LeBron when LeBron was right coming in. And then as Kobe faded in age and LeBron grew in strength and stature, became the guy, he's the best player in the league, but not always the most valuable to his team. Mm -hmm. So if we were on the schoolyard picking teams, you got first pick. Right now, you would take Curry ahead of anybody else. Well, yeah, plus LeBron's hurt, but yeah. No, I, I see, take. I wouldn't. We agree that he's the MVP, but I'd probably take uh, just more of a physical freak who has a body that just, I mean, when we start talking about Giannis or we start talking about even KD. Embiid. Like, who's a more Embiid. Yeah, naturally gifted athlete? Curry's not in the top five, maybe 10. Durant. But, yeah, exactly. But holy shit, he's the MVP, no doubt. Should I end this by saying, and you're my MVP. Back to you, Trisha, with <laughs> weather. All right, buddy, I'll see you. All right. Have a good one. All right. There he is. Jason Searle, a bright individual. He actually had a podcast. Maybe he still does. You could check that out on iTunes. You could also leave a rating right here on iTunes. Also available on Spotify. Plus, you could check out that book, Suddenly Facing Reality on Amazon. Go ahead. Summer is almost here. You need some summer reading. Yeah, you do. This is a very aggressive promotion. Come on. Go ahead. Click purchase. Go ahead. I'll get that point zero 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 one cent of royalties that they promised me. Anywho, I'm wishing you all a great existence. There's some food for thought. You can follow me on Twitter at jrosenberg957. Even though I'm trying to detach from Twitter, I still say things like, follow me on Twitter at jrosenberg957. We'll get a discussion going. All right, folks, that's episode 136. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 